Amen. FBNO, good to be back with you here this morning. Did that encourage you and bless you this morning to sing like that? If so, praise God. And thank you, brother. Thank you for leading us this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of James. We're going to begin a series this morning here in the book of James, a book known for practical wisdom. Um, and I will say, obviously, lots and lots more about that here in just a few moments. It is good to be back with you here this morning, have a time to come and worship together and encourage each other uh, to fellowship in the Spirit, to sing our praises to God, and then be instructed by the Word of God. I'm going to dive in in just a few moments after I pray. Uh, but first, let me just introduce to you broadly the book of James. This is perhaps one of the earliest books in the New Testament to be written by one of the folks that were followers of Jesus Christ or ultimately became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you have several Jameses in the New Testament. Let's get right very quickly on which one's talking to us in this letter. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and that's not who's writing this. There's also James the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Born after him, there's several brothers that walk around. They're mentioned in several places in the Gospels. In John chapter 7, for example, the brothers or the siblings of Jesus think that he's crazy. And you can understand why. I mean, imagine if your, uh, your big brother walks around claiming to be the Son of God and all of those things. You would think he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, too. And uh, so that's who's talking here. This is the half-brother of Jesus who walks around with Jesus, probably has something of a relationship with him, a good relationship with him, a bad relationship with him, but thinks that he's crazy nonetheless. We're told later that he, James, is praying with the apostles after uh, the crucifixion and, and waiting there at Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says that Jesus, as he's going around appearing to the apostles and to the followers of Jesus and things like that, some people will say, well, Jesus only ever appeared to people that already believed in him, so you can't trust their report or their bias. Well, he appeared to at least two people that evidently had not been believers up to that point. He appeared to the apostle Paul. You remember Acts chapter 9 knocks him off the horse, and Paul is changed forevermore because he encounters the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he appears to Cephas, which is one of Peter's names, right? So Jesus appears to Peter, and then it says, and he appeared to James. The next things we hear about James is that he's gone from, you know, being that guy that thought his brother was crazy to now he has Jesus appeared to him. He's praying with the apostles at, at Pentecost. And then the next thing we hear about him is in Acts chapter 15, James has become the pillar of the church of Jerusalem. So it's safe to say by this point that he's been deeply converted. What in the world could change a person like that? I mean, think about it, for example. What would it take for you to be convinced that your sibling is the son of God? I mean, I know my siblings, right? And my siblings know me. There's no way that's going to happen unless something extraordinary happens to them and I would suggest that's exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when Jesus appears to Cephas. We begin now in the book of James. I'm going to read here James chapter 1, verse number 1. Remember that backstory? James thinks that Jesus is crazy, but now listen to how he introduces himself. James, not the half-brother of Jesus. James, not someone who walked around with him. No, 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 that's not what he says. Watch what he says now. This is the half-brother speaking James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. 
his brother has been converted. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Father, bless us this day as we launch into your word. We read it again this morning. We put ourselves before you and before it for our consideration of it and also for its examination of us. And we ask again, fresh and new, God, that never would this time that we have together in your word just simply be rote repetition or custom or something that we do. I know that everybody in this room has better things to do than listen to me talk for 30 minutes. So God, please, in the preaching of your word this morning, would you come and meet with us? Would you speak to us? For we are a people with desperate, desperate needs for you to show up in our lives. And so, Father God, by your word this morning, would you speak to us? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us? Would you conform us in all things? And help us, Father, to live our lives to the praise of your glory as your people, your sons and your daughters that you have claimed and rescued for yourself and that now have called us in your Son to life, to abundance, and to mission. God, we love you and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you love trials. That's what I thought. Not a real popular guy this morning, I am. Not any one of us in this room enjoys a good trial. No, we hate them. Let's be honest about it. Our natural instinct is to recoil when difficulty arises for us, right? We don't want to be in trial. We are miserable in trial. When we pray in trial, our prayers essentially are prayers that God would just simply take them away from us, that He would remove them from us, or that He'd remove us from them. We want them to pass quickly. We want judgment and justice to be done immediately. We want it to be resolved as quickly as possible. We are uncomfortable. We are despondent. We despair. We loathe trials. And yet they're a fact of life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've got. There's a little bit of a myth that all of us seem to operate on. is that if I could just get to that next level... My problems will go away. What fools we are to think such things. And yet we think it and we strive and we labor for that next step, that next level, that next thing that we can do, that next rung that we can reach for. And all the while, though we've learned the lesson before so many times, we're so gullible to buy into it again, thinking that if I can just get to that next spot, my problems will go away. But I'm telling you, trials are a fact of life. It does not matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Trials will always be with us. They'll always be in front of us. They are a fact of life, and we loathe them, right? 
And yet the scriptures present trials to us in a different light. I mean, this is, look, not everything's this way in Christianity, but let's be honest about what is. There's so much about the Christian faith that takes what the world says or takes what our natural inclinations may be and just flips them upside down 100%. What the world thinks or what we would be naturally inclined to think, God just says, no, I'm going to do it the other way around, right? In our minds, it would be the most natural thing to, to think that, man, if we could just get our problems gone, we would be better off, and listen, here it is, and we would be better people. Because after all, listen to me, we all somehow think that our misbehavior, our bad deeds, our sinning is always because of some external factor to us. We deflect it off, right? I know I did this. I know I said this. I know I I operated that way or I behaved that way, but it's only because they made me. It's only because I'm stressed. And we think to ourselves, man, if we can just get it off, not only are we going to be happy, but now we're going to be better for it. And you know what? Uh Uh-uh. The Scriptures flip it upside down. They dare to suggest to us that perhaps God is doing something that He can only do through trial. Now, having said that, because we loathe them so much, because we despise it so much, because it causes our soul to ache with such anguish, we don't know how to navigate trials. And so the Apostle James walks us through, here's how we ought to respond. And so let's just, this will be part one. We'll pick it up next time in verse number nine and go through probably around verse number 20. Because for 20 verses, James is focusing here on these trials, giving us an assortment of counsel and practical wisdom about how we proceed through trial. Number one, here's what he says to us. Verse number two through verse number three. We are to, number one, have joy knowing that God is at work in our trials. I mean, James instructs us in verse 2 to do something that's completely antithetical to our natural way of thinking. Trial has come, bemoan it. Trial has come, loathe it. Trial has come, and I hate it. And yet, James says to us, when the trials come, count it all joy. Be happy. Take joy. Take heart. We are to have joy. Why? Knowing that God is at work in us and around us and through us in these circumstances. Now, know what he says, verse number two. My brothers, count it all joy. In other words, if you were to be taking inventory of your life of the good stuff and the bad stuff, and you were to be giving an account of where it goes on the spreadsheet, so to speak, you're to take the trial and actually put it on the good side. Hey, here's the silver lining. You got something going for you, trials. No, that's not how I naturally think. And yet that's, in, that's how we're instructed in the text to think about this. Count it all joy. Consider it joy when you fall into, watch this, various trials. We could make a mistake here, I think, this morning by trying to pinpoint exactly the kind of trial that James is getting at. No, he says various trials. Which means it doesn't matter if it's a trial because of your health. doesn't matter if it's a trial because of your circumstances at your, your job. doesn't matter if it's a trial in your family. doesn't matter if it's a trial in your psychology. Listen, there's an assortment of trials. I guarantee if we took inventory here this morning, if we had one of those profound moments of corporate uh, uh, transparency and we all just started coming up here and laying down the thing in our life that stresses us out the most right now, 
What you'd have as well, probably as many different issues as there are people in this room. You know what, James doesn't seem to pigeonhole this to say, now I'm talking about this kind of trial. No, it's various trials. Trials broadly construed and understood. In other words, it's the kind of stuff that you're dealing with right now. I don't know what it is, but I know you're human and I know you're just like me and I've got my own trials and my own difficulties that I have to battle with and I, just like you, loathe them. I hate them. I despise these trials. And yet the Scriptures instruct me to say, no, 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 my brother, count it all joy. Why? Knowing that God is at work in and through the trials to do something in you that will actually make you better, actually perhaps make you whole. We're instructed there, verse number two, to take joy knowing that God is at work through this. You know who I remember in all this? I remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul records at the very beginning of the chapter, it's a really interesting passage. He says, I know a man who was taken up into the third heaven. Now, what do you mean by third heaven? Well, there's the first heaven, and the, typically what's understood here is, a, well, this would be the sky that the birds are flying around in right now. It's the sky where the tree limbs are up into right now. That's the first heaven. The second heaven would be the stars and the planets and the moons and all those things. The third heaven is heaven heaven. What the Apostle Paul is saying, I know a man, whether it was me or somebody else, I don't know, but I know a man, and he was taken up into heaven by what most scholars believe is that Paul had some kind of -of out-of-body experience here where he was taken up into heaven, hearing and seeing things that he was not allowed to repeat back down here on earth. Now, imagine this. Imagine you had that experience. I don't know. If I had that experience, I'd probably walk around like Conor McGregor, strutting around, right? Thinking I'm a big shot thinking I'm somebody with a strut and with a swagger because I have gone to heaven and God said some things He's not going to tell y'all. The Apostle Paul says in response to that, that because so that nobody would think more highly of me than they ought. In other words, to keep me humble. God gave me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Scholars have racked their brains trying to figure out what this thorn in the flesh was. Some people think he had bad eyesight. I mean, he writes in his Galatian letters with these really big letters. It's like kindergarten letters. Maybe people have said because he couldn't see. People have said, well, he wasn't articulate and he couldn't speak and that was his thorn in the flesh. Some people have said, well, you know, he was beaten and all of these other things. He had physical ailments. Some scholars have even said he was just dog ugly. Repulsive to look at. I don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but I know what the purpose of that thorn in the flesh was. It was to keep him humble. Why is that so important? Because I'm telling you, I don't care if you're the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, David, or anybody else. God hates pride, and he will always bring it down. God wanted to do something in and through Paul such that he had to keep him humble. So God, listen to this, God God sent, God sent a messenger of Satan to do what? To buffet him, to beat on him, to prod at him, to create a space of misery in his life. And you know what's interesting? The Apostle Paul says, you know what? I begged God three times that he would take that thorn in the flesh away from me. And God's answer was no. Catch that? Does God have the ability and the power right now to take your stress stress and your trial away from you? Absolutely. Does He do that? Nope, not normally. 
most of the time, God lets it sit there on you. God, most of the time, God lets you carry it. Most of the time, God lets you deal with it and struggle with it. And most of the time, we're miserable and do it. Thanks a lot, God, we might be inclined to say. But you have to take joy knowing that God is at work in and through this trial. Right? The Apostle Paul would say this, Concerning this thing, I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And listen to God's answer. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Listen to me. The promise that we have from God is not that He's always going to eliminate the trial. Trials do have a temporal duration. It will eventually end. But for now, it is here with us. And God has an interest in you. Understand that God is more interested in your holiness than He is your entertainment. God is more interested in your maturity than He is your convenience. God is more interested in you being whole. God is more interested in you being the man or the woman that He made you to be, full of life and the ability to minister. God is more interested in that than He is the niceties of our life that we complain when we don't have or they are interrupted. God said to Paul, my promise to you is not that I'll take it away. Listen to me. This is His promise for us. My promise to you is that my grace is sufficient for you in the trial. The promise that I bank on, the promise that you and I must count on, is not that God is always going to take my headaches away. But that when I call on Him, that He Himself will meet me in the trial. And stand with me in that moment. And that He Himself will be enough for me. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul would say later, verse number 3 through 5. And not only that, it's almost identical to what James says here, by the way. And not only that, but also, I glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. Listen, brothers and sisters, you and I are to be encouraged in the moment of trial knowing that God is at work in our lives to do something in us that can only be accomplished through those, those tests. Second thing I want you to see. Now here's what I want to... Let me just pause here before I move on. He tells us to take joy. So how do you do that? I mean, do you just white-knuckle it? I'm happy. No, <laughs> that doesn't work. We all know that doesn't work. We're just faking it when we do that. Okay, so let me be clear about this. God's not commanding you to fake it. That's important to say. There's a lot of people that walk through the church, not just this church. Look, I'm, I'm in a lot of churches. I, I, I'm around religious folks all the time. There's a lot of people that live and function within the body of Christ that are just faking it. God's not interested in your plastic. God's not interested in your, in your artificial veneers. He's not interested in you putting on a good show. That's not what He's commanding you to do. I'm telling you, He's encouraging us. He's directing us to take an actual joy. But trials are hard. We loathe them. In trial, listen, it is if we are unassisted by the help of the power of the Spirit of God, if we are left to our own devices and abilities, in trial, you will despair. In trial, your faith will become unhitched from God. It will happen. I'm not telling you to fake it this morning. I'm not telling you to put on a show this morning. 
I'm telling you, real joy is available to us in that moment. So how does that happen? I think really everything else he's about to say to us kind of gives us the pathway for that. So tune in, watch this. Verse 4, verse number 3 and verse number 4. Be patient to allow God to do the work. So number one, you're to take joy knowing that he's at work. Number two, you are to be patient with the process and allow God to do the work. And look, I'm just going to say it to you. I think most of the time, because of our frustration, because of our stress, we get in the flesh We try to handle these situations and these problems on our own with our own abilities and our own devices and our own thoughts. We take matters into our own hands and we circumvent the process. Instead of backing up, drop down before God, seek His face and trust Him in those moments and let the process work. I'm telling you, as the people of God, what we desperately need is both a theology and practice of patience and waiting. I mean, think about it. The people of Israel, for 400 years, I've said this to you before on two other sermons. I'm struck by this. For 400 years, these people live and die in in Egypt and they never see God's hand. They just have to wait. right? After Malachi speaks, it's 400 years before Jesus Christ will show up. There's generations of people that are born, they live, they die, and they never see God do anything. It's been 2,000 years. We have to be a people of waiting. Listen, God's not on some kind of hurried up timetable here, clearly. If that's true for the whole of creation, I assure you it's true for your slice of reality, your life. So be patient, he says. Verse 4, know that the testing of your faith, verse 3 says, it produces patience. And now we're set in verse 4 to let patience have its perfect work. Which is a really... Interesting, fun, cool way of saying, be patient with the process. Why? So that you may be, listen to this, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, I say to you, God is more interested in your your holiness than He is your entertainment. He's more interested in your character and your maturity than He is your convenience. God wants you. I mean, think about it. This makes so much sense to us. Parents, for example. Aren't you interested in seeing your children grow up, not just to be wealthy, but good people. People that love God. People that contribute to society. People that are well. Don't you want that for your children? Yes, of course you do. Listen, I'm telling you that our Father wants that for all of us much more than we could ever want it for ourselves or for anybody else. God is at work through a process to bring about, listen to this, perfection, completion, such that we lack nothing. He's more interested in who we are than what we have or what our situation is. That's what God is at work. And I tell you, that is the, care, the kind of care and concern that only someone who loves you could have. Take heart knowing that the Father loves you. I recall Psalm 37 here. Do this for me. I don't, rare, I, I don't often do this. Flip over to th- Psalm 37 for just a second. Keep your thumb where we're at. Psalm 37 for a second. I just want to read this. I want you to, to see, look, this is how the people of God did exactly what James is saying to do. These were the scriptures and the, the passages of, of the Psalms that they read to do exactly what he's saying and to remember exactly what James is now saying to us in chapter 1. Psalm 37, verse 1 through verse number 11. It's a big chunk, but just listen to this. Here's the Scriptures as they would sing it to each other. We're instructed, Do not fret because of evildoers. 
Nor be envious of workers of iniquity, for they will soon be cut down like grass. Remember this? Remember what I said? Trial always has a temporal nature. It will come to an end. They will wither like a green herb. Listen now, verse 3. We are instructed, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Listen to this. Feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Listen to this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the noonday sun. Rest in the Lord. Listen to this. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, we're told. Forsake wrath. I just pause there for a moment. Getting mad, getting upset, getting frustrated, not going to accomplish anything. Just robbing you of the joy that you could have and probably circumventing the process that God is instilling to bring these things in your life. You get in the flesh, you're actually getting worse, not better. Just, I don't mean to use a baseball analogy in the middle of a psalm here, but bear with me for a second. I loved being a baseball coach for my boys. I loved it. Loved everything about that dirt, loved everything about that grass, loved everything about that dugout, loved everything about hearing those boys play and laugh. I loved the look of joy on their face when they'd get a base hit for the first time or they'd strike a kid out or something like that. Oh my gosh, I could live those moments again and again and again. One thing I hated about being a baseball coach though was when my boys would get out on the baseball diamond as we're warming up or as we're going through drills and things like that and they get silly and they're not doing it right. And here's what I would say to my boys, I say to you. Stop it. If you're doing it wrong here, listen to me, you're practicing getting worse. You do it wrong in practice, you're actually giving your muscles and muscle memory is creating to do it the wrong way. Do it the right way every single time. Don't just lollygag a throw over to first base. You know how to throw it on a rope. Do it every single time. Don't ever just lob it over there being silly because you're making yourself worse. You know, you get in the flesh in these moments. You're practicing getting worse. You're circumventing the process. So I want you to see we're instructed to take joy. We're instructed to be patient. Verse number five, thirdly. We're instructed, and I think this one's essential for us here today. We are instructed to seek wisdom to navigate the trial at hand. We are instructed to take wisdom or seek wisdom to navigate the trial at hand. This is probably the most important thing we're going to talk about today. So just make sure we're tuning in here. Now look, here for some scholars or for some Bible readers, when they read the book of James, I can remember thinking this my early years of Christianity. It feels like James is switching subjects here. Right? Well, he's been talking to us about trial and patience. Then in verse 5, he starts talking about wisdom. Then in verse 6 through 8, he starts talking to us about having faith and trust. We'll come to that in a minute. And then he talks about all these other things throughout the remainder of chapter 1. It looks like he's just bouncing around all over the place. No, 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 no. That's not what he's doing. Think about it this way. When is the moment in your life when you need wisdom the most? Is it not when the trial is raging around you? Yeah. I mean, look, it gets, it gets sideways. It gets scary. Things are up in the air. The stress is mounting. It is in those moments that we don't know what to do. 
It is in those moments that we are, we are left to our own devices and we'll mess it up even more. I mean, if there's ever a moment when you and I need wisdom, it is a trial. And yet, listen to me, I don't know if you're like me. I mean, I'm a creative guy. I'm kind of innovative in some ways. And so it is my natural disposition and tendency when a situation hits me that there's a problem. It is unfortunately just my natural disposition to, to turn this thing on and begin thinking through all the different ways that I can solve it. And it's my last disposition to drop down to my knees and beg God to help me with the problem at hand. And yet, what God tells us to do now is in these moments you seek after wisdom. Watch what verse 5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I guarantee you that for every one of us in the midst of these trials, that's actually probably why the trial is so stressful to us. I mean, if we were in the trial and we knew exactly what to do, and we knew exactly how it was going to work out, our stress level would go down drastically, wouldn't it? No, but that's not the truth, right? The truth is we don't know what to do in these moments. And therefore, we're really stressed. So, if any of you lacks wisdom, which we do, here's the instructions. Very simple. Let him ask God. Drop to our knees. Get on our face before God and seek wisdom. And now, you can be comforted knowing that he will give it to us freely and without refining reproach. You ever ask somebody for wisdom and they look at you like you're an idiot because you don't know the answer? We have the assurance from God's word that God will not do that to you. He will not do that to you. You drop to your knees, you seek wisdom, and he's, He will pour it out. Pour it out liberally, He says. Now, flip over to one other passage of Scripture here real quick. Proverbs chapter 2. I want you to see this one too. I normally don't do this, but I'm doing it twice in one sermon. But oh well, that's okay. Proverbs chapter 2. Verse 1 through 4. I want you to see how the book of Proverbs describes the seeking of wisdom. James just says it. Let him ask of God. Seek wisdom, right? But the Proverbs really just lavishly describe what this process looks like. And I would suggest to you that if my pursuit of wisdom and if your pursuit of wisdom would look like what Proverbs 2 describes now, you and I are going to be just fine. You and I are going to be just fine. Verse, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. My son, Solomon writes, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands, Within you. Note that language. Treasure the commands. Don't bristle at the command. Treasure. God has spoken to us. So that you incline your ear to wisdom. In other words, that your natural posture and disposition is one of listening and asking God to, to speak to us. If you incline your ear to wisdom. If you apply your heart to understanding. Listen to this. Yes, if you cry out for discernment. If you lift your voice for understanding, listen to this. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. Imagine that I told you, I saw just this week, that there was a guy who bought a used couch and he felt something lumpy in one of the cushions and he got it zipped open and found $43,000 in cash. Now he's a good Samaritan evidently because he's tracking down the original owner and going to give it back. That's why he was on the news. Let me ask you this. If I told you that somebody had lumped away $43,000 in cash in your sofa, I bet you I'm not going to finish this sermon and you are getting up and walking out the door. Your pursuit, your pursuit would be aggressive. Why? Because it's treasure. Now look, 
What the proverb is telling us to do is seek wisdom, understanding, discernment from God like you would be seeking silver. Pursue it as if you're pursuing a hidden treasure. Now, you can go on and read the rest of it through the rest of Proverbs chapter 2. It goes on to talk now about how God goes ahead and responds to us in that. And the promises are made again and again that God will indeed promise or give us those things. So first of all, take joy knowing that God is at work. Number two, we are to have patience and let God do the work. Number three, we're to seek wisdom so that we can know how to navigate it. The last thing I want you to see just very quickly, verse number six through verse number eight. If you're going to ask for it, believe that God will give it to you. And actually, it says, and if you don't believe that God will give it to you, He won't give it to you. Now, I know we hear that kind of formula, ask and then believe and He will give it. We hear that kind of formula in Christianity today from the health and wealth movement. You ask for a Jaguar, you better believe, and if you don't believe, you're not going to get the Jaguar. No. No, 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 no. There's nothing like that so far as I can tell anywhere in the Old or New Testament, y'all. It's just not there. But that formula is there about seeking of wisdom. James tells us, verse number 6, let him ask in faith. You're going to ask for that wisdom? Then ask in faith. No doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. The wind just blows it wherever it wants to go. Don't let that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man in all of his ways. So in other words, here's the point. You drop down on your knees. You get down onto your face. You seek God's wisdom and you pursue it like it's silver. You pursue it like it's treasure hidden in the lumpy parts of your couch diligently, fervently, desperately seeking after this, calling out for God, and then counting on God to show up. We're never promised, brothers and sisters, that trials will be taken from us. What we are promised is that our God is enough for us in those trials. And we are to seek His wisdom and His guidance. We are to trust the process and be patient in it. Knowing that His intention, what He seeks to do in me and in you, is to make us perfect, complete, lacking nothing. More to come next week. Father, bless us, we pray. Help us to be diligent to pursue You and Your wisdom and Your grace in our lives. Help us to be faithful to trust the process and let You do the work that needs to be done in us. God, I... For each of us, none of us know exactly the work that's got to be done, but you do. And so, Father, as a people, may we be resolved this day to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.